Well, we are in week three, right in the middle of a five-week series uh, called Jesus is the Subject. And right at the outset, I want to give you some good news. I've got some good news uh, to share with you today. I'm sure you've had your fill of bad news or anxiety-inducing news. And so um, I'm going to be sharing some good news today. And at the outset, I want to encourage you uh, to think back to what might be some of the best news you've ever heard. Uh, Maybe it was uh, the birth of a child, or maybe uh, somebody you loved that had been away for a long time was finally getting to come home. Uh, Maybe somebody you had been praying for for a long time had experienced healing or some sort of a breakthrough, or somebody you'd been praying would receive salvation uh, finally uh, came into the family of God. Whatever it was, I want you to think about that news and whether or not you were expecting it at the time, whether or not um, you were Uh, anticipating it, or if it was totally a surprise that caught you off guard. And uh, that will make a little sense a little bit later on in the message, but I want to share some good news right off the bat, and that is this, that Jesus is not quarantined. Uh, Jesus is not practicing social distancing. He is with you. He is for you. He has clean hands and a pure heart, and uh, he wants to help you and guide you through uh, these days with comfort, with peace, and with joy. And so as we think about this series and about Jesus being the subject, uh, that's important to us. That's, that's perhaps now more than ever that we would be feeding our faith and not our fear, that we would be making Jesus the subject of our lives and finding the comfort and the peace and the joy that comes with that. As I mentioned, this is week three. If you've missed one of the previous uh, couple of weeks, I would encourage you to go to our podcast or go up into the video section here on Facebook and find those videos uh, from the last couple of weeks. Uh, We opened the series in a study of the Gospel of Matthew and the idea that Jesus is the Messiah and how important that was to Matthew's audience, to his Jewish audience and to his own Jewish heritage. Uh, The bottom line from that message was that Jesus is the anointed one, and you are the appointed one. That Jesus was anointed for a special task, and as he completed that task and ascended back into heaven, he appointed his followers to go and make disciples. So he's the anointed one, you are the appointed one. Last week, we looked at the Gospel of Mark and the way that Jesus is presented consistently in that Gospel as a suffering servant sent to die on behalf of those who would be separated from God otherwise. And we talked about how God can use our own suffering if we will surrender it. Our suffering um, can turn, surrendering our suffering can turn our mess into a message. Even this mess that we find ourselves in with COVID-19 and and with the financial situation and with uh, the isolation and the anxiety that many are feeling, God can turn that mess into a message as well if we'll surrender that suffering to him and allow him to work in us and through us. Today we're going to be looking at the gospel of Luke and how Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. Uh, We have reason to believe that Luke was written after the Gospel of Mark, around the same time, most likely, as the Gospel of Matthew, and quite a bit before the Gospel of John. Um, Like Mark and uh, Matthew, uh, Luke follows uh, a synopsis or a chronological telling of the story, and so those three are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels, where the narrative is driven by the events and they advance with each other. John is just a little different because it it focuses on stories and longer narrative sections 
um, that are more focused on the person of Jesus and the relationship that he had with his disciples and with the people that he encountered. Luke is um, written by an author that identifies himself as Luke. We know uh, from other areas in Scripture that he was a traveling companion of Paul uh, during the book of Acts. In fact, the gospel writer Luke wrote both Luke and Acts as a two-volume set, and he was commissioned to do so uh, by perhaps a wealthy patron or somebody who wanted um, to have a, 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 an orderly account. He tells us in the first few verses of chapter 1 um, that he has been commissioned to do so by somebody he addresses as Theophilus. And Theophilus in the Greek language means God lover. And so if you love God, then this book was written to you. And um, it's often been referred to by scholars as the Gospel of Paul. Because Luke and Paul had such a close relationship, it's very likely that this orderly account that Luke sets forward for us in the Gospel of Luke was was basically Paul's understanding and interpretation of the events um, that had taken place. Luke um, is most likely a Gentile believer, somebody who had come to faith in Christ, uh, not a Jew by birth, and it's written primarily to Gentiles, to the Greek, um, the Greek society, the Greek culture. And I think that will be uh, significant as we think about Jesus as the Son of Man. But Luke makes his purpose very, very clear. He tells us precisely why he wrote the gospel. And it comes in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That you would know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. So if you've been taught things about Jesus, Luke is addressing you with this gospel so that you would know the certainty of those things based on eyewitness accounts and based on the miracles that took place. We're going to start our study today in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open it to Luke chapter 4. And this is really the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, uh, it starts with the most detailed birth narrative of the Gospels. Both Matthew and Luke give us insights into the birth um, of Christ, but Luke gives us the most details there. And then it moves uh, to an introduction of John the Baptist as the one that was paving the way for Christ and announcing that his kingdom was coming soon. Then Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and we get a genealogy of Christ um, that would be significant particularly to the Jewish audience. Um, And finally, at the beginning of chapter 4, we read about Jesus being tempted in the desert Uh, by Satan. And so that's where we pick up in verse 14. I'll read this passage to you and uh, would encourage you to follow along in whichever Bible uh, version you have with you. I'm reading from the New International Version. And here's what we read in picking up in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives. And recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, when I talked about hearing good news and whether or not it was expected or unexpected, I want you to think for a moment what it would be like to be in that audience and to hear the familiar words, perhaps, from the prophet Isaiah, for many of his audience would have been very familiar with those, but the real earth-shattering, mind-blowing, unexpected, revolutionary news comes in that very last statement that he makes in verse 21, when he tells them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's making quite a claim about himself. And the setting for this passage is referenced in Matthew 13 and in Mark 6, and I referenced this passage in week 1. Luke records Jesus quoting the passage from Isaiah 61, whereas the other two just referenced the setting for it. And so um, here, Luke is recording Jesus as he makes this claim that he is the Son of Man who has come to do these things. And I want to look at the things that he came to do and the people that he came to do them for. And so um, as you look at verses 18 and 19, you'll see, and this is on the screen behind me, that Jesus came to do a number of things. He came to preach. He came to proclaim. He came to proclaim freedom and also to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. He came to release the captives or release the oppressed, and he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as we think about those things, I want you to think about them not just in the physical sense, but to think about them in the spiritual sense. So when he came to preach good news to the poor, he's talking not just about physical poverty, but about spiritual poverty. That those, there are those who may be very wealthy by the world's standards, wealthy physically, but are spiritually impoverished. And when he talks about being sent or being an apostle, that's really what an apostle is, is a sent one. When he talks about being sent to proclaim freedom for prisoners, he's not just talking about those who are physically prisoners. He's talking about those who are spiritually held captive as well. And when he talks about recovery of sight to the blind, of course, he's not just talking about physical blindness. We do have miracle stories in all of the gospels that Uh, share about him restoring sight to a blind person in the physical sense. But all of those are illustrative of his ability to provide spiritual recovery of sight. And those who were spiritually blind being able to to see um, spiritually as well. When he talks about release of the oppressed, he's not just talking about physical oppression. He's talking about spiritual oppression, that those, and there are stories of these types of of healings and these miracles as well, where someone is held captive or is oppressed by a demonic spirit, and he delivers them from that. So there's the physical sense and the, re, the, the realistic sense, but there's also a spiritual and a figurative sense in which Jesus brought an end to spiritual oppression. And finally, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So those are the things he came to do, but I also want to look in these, each of these phrases, there's an audience or there's a recipient of what he came to do. The Son of Man came to preach good news to the poor. 
and to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to bring recovery of sight for the blind and freedom or release for the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so it's not just what he did, but who he came to do it for. And when you look at those those people groups that are represented in these two verses, you see that he didn't come for the best and the brightest. He didn't come for the people who had it all put together. He didn't come for the rich. He didn't come for the self-righteous. He didn't come for those who thought that they could see everything on their own. He came for those who were spiritually poor. He came for those who were prisoners held captive by sin or literally held captive. He came for those who were blind spiritually and unable to see their sin or see their need for a savior. He came for those who were oppressed and he came for the purpose of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And I want to focus on that phrase for just a moment as well. Uh, It would be very, very uh, well known or familiar to his audience uh, there in Nazareth in the synagogue. It was a Jewish audience. Um, But that, that word, the year of the Lord's favor, is speaking of the year of Jubilee that comes from the Old Testament. And so if you look at Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, this speaks directly to the year of the Lord or to the year of Jubilee. And in this section of the law, Moses uh, declares, God declaring through Moses to the people of Israel, to consecrate the 50th year and to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. And so this becomes very, very significant because uh, it basically said that even if you had to sell yourself into slavery every 50th year, All the land would be restored to its original owners and all the captives will be set free. And that would be incredibly good news. Now, scholars have reason to believe that the whole idea of a year of Jubilee had fallen out of favor uh, centuries before and was not really regularly practiced. But it was always God's intent that there would be every 50 years or every generation or so. At that time, generations were a lot shorter than they are today. But then in every generation, there would be a year of jubilee. There would be a release for the captives. There would be a restoration. And Jesus came to do that and to return the land and to set the captives free. And this was a gift from God. And it was a gift that the people of God knew was coming and could anticipate that the year of Jubilee was coming. And it was oriented around a 50th year because every seven years the land was supposed to rest. And so every cycle of seven years there was this year of Jubilee in the 50th year. And so as we consider that and we think about that, um, I want you to switch over to Luke 19. So just turn a few pages forward. And uh, here in Luke 19, we're going to uh, see what becomes the central verse in Luke's gospel. And most scholars would point to Luke 19, uh, verse 10, as the central gospel. But you have to view it in, in the context of the declaration that he makes in Luke Four, And so if you're not familiar with Luke 19, uh, this is the story of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And we talked about tax collectors in Matthew's uh, gospel in week one, because both Matthew and Zacchaeus were tax collectors who were traitors to their own people and who were exploiting their own people to become very, very wealthy uh, by collecting more taxes than were due, passing on what was due to the Romans uh, who were occupying the people of God or the nation of, of Israel. 
and then keeping the rest for themselves. And so uh, Zacchaeus, you know, climbs up into a sycamore tree. If you've heard that story, uh, he, Jesus sees him, calls him down. Uh, Zacchaeus is cut to the heart. He, he repents. He has a desire to bring restoration. And uh, he makes a, a commitment to Christ and to live honorably going forward. And Jesus closes that story by saying to him in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. And that's why scholars call this the central verse because it identifies, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man and identifies his purpose, which is to seek and to save what was lost. And by identifying himself as the Son of Man, Jesus does something really important. He identifies with our humanity. Uh, there's a doctrine uh, surrounding Jesus as being fully human and fully divine. And so in identifying himself as the Son of Man, he's identifying with his humanity. Next week in the Gospel of John, we'll look at Jesus as the Son of God and fully consider his full divinity and how he brings us into that. But by identifying himself as the Son of Man, he identifies his mission to seek and to save the lost, that he was God and came to become man in order that we could become children of God. So he came on this divine rescue mission to seek and to save a lost humanity and to bring us into the presence and into the family of God. And this idea that he's fully human and fully divine is is sort of hard for us to my to wrap our minds around because you think if it's full like if this bottle was full of water then how could it be full of something else and Jesus somehow manages to be fully human the entire time that he walks the earth and at the same time fully divine and C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity helps explain this a little bit um, by by saying it helps to think of not just fully, but truly, that Jesus was truly human. He was born a human birth. He lived a human life. He went through a linear chronological existence during his time on earth, and yet he was truly divine, truly God the entire time. Somehow, 100% human and 100% divine at the same time. And so that's the significance of Jesus identifying himself as the Son of Man. His mission then to seek and save the lost becomes uh, very important to us. And Luke spends a whole chapter on this idea of God seeking and saving lost things or lost people. If you want to look at Luke 15 this week, I would strongly encourage you to read and to study that chapter of Scripture. If you're not familiar with it, it recounts three different stories. One, in the first story, uh, a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one is lost. And it says, would he not leave the 99 where it is safe and go find the one that was lost? So the sheep just wandered off. The second one is a woman loses a coin. It's the, the, the parable of the lost coin. And now she has 10 coins and one of those coins is lost and she searches for it everywhere she can find it. And as soon as she finds it, she calls and, and invites her friends over to celebrate. Just like the shepherd, as soon as the sheep is found, he, he brings it home, puts it on his shoulders, brings it home and calls his friends together to celebrate. 
And finally, uh, the final story, the parable of the lost son. Um, and we're, now we're down to two. One of two sons is gone. And so you can see we started with one of a hundred sheep and then one of ten coins. And now one of two sons. And this son doesn't just wander off or doesn't get lost accidentally. This son leaves intentionally. He says, give me a share of my share of the inheritance and leaves leaves the family, leaves the father, goes to a far-off place, squanders all of it in wild living, we're told. And when, they're, when he's completely broke, when he's completely at the end of himself, he says, goodness, the, the slaves in my father's house have it better than this. I'll rise and go to my father's house. And that is, is symbolic of repentance in the life of every believer, that we, that we leave God's will for our lives, that we, we go off on our own, and that we squander the resources that we have. And when we come to our senses, when we come to that point of salvation, much like Zacchaeus did, then we return to our Father's house. We go back to him, and we find that he doesn't just make us slaves. He doesn't just enlist us into servitude, that he's watching for us. And he runs out to meet us and he throws his arms around us and puts a cloak on us and slaughters a fattened calf and throws a party to welcome us home. And so John 15 is such a powerful, powerful chapter of Scripture and understanding the divine rescue mission that Jesus was on. Because when you read that, you'll notice that things don't go so well with the older brother. The older brother that didn't leave, didn't go off and squander a fortune. The older brother that stayed and was faithful is bitter at the end of that story. The older brother is not welcoming the younger brother home. And he won't even come into the party and partake in the celebration. And the father has to go out to him and beg him to come in. And we leave that story not knowing for sure if he will or not. So when Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that he is the son of man and that he came to seek and save what is lost, he's basically saying in that story, I'm the older brother that would leave, that would go and find the younger brother and bring him back home. And that's what he's done for each and every one of us. Jesus is that perfect older brother. And so our bottom line today is that for you, I'm sorry, for Jesus, you were the subject. For Jesus, you were the subject. And he left heaven in order to come to earth to be the son of man, to seek and save what was lost, and to make a way for us to come back to God and to be a part of the family of God. He was seeking you even before you were seeking him. And he was seeking you in order to save you, to be that perfect older brother that brings you back to the Father. You see, for Jesus, you were the subject. And that, my friends, is very good news. And so as we bring this message to a close, I want to revisit Luke 4 for a moment and tell you a little bit of the rest of the story. You can read this if you're not familiar with it. Um, But basically, he transitions from that point that we read and explains that a prophet has no honor in his own town. And they don't like that very very much in Nazareth. And they say, well, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the boy that we saw grow up before us? Why is he proclaiming himself to be the son of man? Why is he proclaiming himself to be the Messiah that has come, that God has sent? And the people end up filled with wrath. And in a rage, they take him out and they're about to throw him off a cliff. But it wasn't time for that to happen. And so he actually ends up walking out uh, between them. And I think in this point, 
they illustrate in these verses that we have considered today, they illustrate three different responses to Jesus and to the Son of Man. And I want to walk through these with you briefly. The, the first response to the Son of Man is one of active resistance. This is what happened in Nazareth, active resistance, fighting against. And we see throughout the Gospels that there are those who maybe were stakeholders in the current reality, in the current system, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who were oppressing people. When you start saying, hey, I came to release the captives, if you're somebody who puts people into captivity, that's not good news for you. And for the rich, when he says, I came to preach good news to the poor, you're like, what about me? And there are those who fight against conviction even today. There are those who meet the Son of Man, and the good news for those who have received him is not good news to them. And they fight against the conviction, and they, they fight against the church, and they'll try to enact legislation to handicap the church. They'll, they'll fight against uh, people when they're sharing their faith. They'll ridicule them. Uh, these are those who, who meet the Son of Man or who respond to the Son of Man with active resistance or rebellion. The next group is those who maybe have a passive indifference. They respond to conviction with a shrug of the shoulders. They're not too concerned about it. They might describe themselves as agnostic, saying that, that truth can't be known. Maybe there is truth, but we're not capable of knowing it. And so they just kind of shrug their shoulders. They see no need for a Savior. They try to ignore Jesus, try to ignore the conviction when it comes, and try to live as if God does not exist. So they're not in active rebellion or active resistance, but they're not receiving it. They're pretending it doesn't exist. They're passively indifferent. And then there's a final group, and that's the group uh, that we would characterize by an eager embrace. When the Son of Man comes to them, when somebody shares their faith with them, when they come into a church service or they sit at home in their living room and watch a message about Jesus as the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, they have an eager embrace to that news. And it's characterized by repentance, just like the younger son who went and squandered and wasted all that had been given to him. They rise and they come back to their father's house and they find him waiting for them. And they embrace him. And they respond to conviction with repentance. These are the poor, the spiritually poor, the captives, the spiritual captives, the spiritually blind, the spiritual oppressed, that it is good news to them that the Son of Man, that Jesus made them the subject. That's our bottom line. Remember, for Jesus, you were the subject. And so I don't want to assume that everybody watching this feed or that sees this video at some point in the time is already a believer. I don't want to assume that at all. And if if you realize that you are not a believer, that you are not in the family of God, then I hope you'll choose option three. I hope that you will choose an eager embrace, that you will not allow yourself to be passively indifferent, and that you will not carry on an active resistance to the things of God. The Son of Man, God himself, came to earth to seek and to save those who were lost. That's why we reach people for Christ. That's why we give them a place to belong. That's why we help them grow in their faith as we 
seek to increasingly become a family of families because there is much that has been lost. There is much that hell has stolen. And Jesus came to take it back. And he wants to do it through me and he wants to do it through you and he wants to do it through us together to let people know that God has come on a rescue mission for them. And it was good news. It was the best news that I had ever received when I became fully aware of my spiritual state. And interestingly enough, as I think about that, the best news that ever came to me came right on the heels of some of the worst news. See, I remember coming to faith in Christ was on the heels of a four-week sermon series that our church had done on hell, teaching on hell, what hell was like, what hell, uh, how it's represented in the Scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then I came, was confronted with the reality that I was a sinner and that I was destined for an eternity in hell. And yet there was good news. And the good news was that for Jesus, I was the subject And that he was pursuing me and he was seeking me and he wanted to save me. And so even though I had fooled myself and others into believing that I was rich and and I had everything I needed, the reality was that I was poor, that I was spiritually impoverished, that I was dead broke, yet Jesus had good news for me. I had gotten really good at religion, but I had no relationship with Jesus Christ. I was a prisoner. I was held captive to the ways of the world. I was a slave to sin. But Jesus brought freedom, brought freedom to me from sin and brought freedom to me to live for him. I was blind. I was unable to see my own spiritual sin poverty. I was unable to see my own sinfulness. And Jesus opened my eyes. I was oppressed. I was burdened by religion. I was overwhelmed. Jesus released me from that oppression. He released me from addictions. He released me from sin. And so when he says, this is the year of the Lord's favor, I want to declare that as well, that 2020 can be the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus inaugurated this. And I know there are all kinds of jokes going around right now, like we want, we've tried our 90-day trial of 2020 and we're ready to send it back and have another 2019 because 2020 hasn't been that great of a year for a lot of people. But the reality is that Jesus inaugurated that year of Jubilee and it, it has never ended since he came. That in a spiritual sense, it is the year of Jubilee today and that we can draw closer to God through these circumstances, that Jesus can be the subject of our lives and that this can be the year of his favor. We can receive that as good news. We can be free. We can see anew and we can be released Despite COVID-19, despite the chaos in the world around us, despite the uncertainty and the economic crisis, all of it, Jesus came to seek and save us. He made us the subject of his lives, of, of his life, and we can respond in faith to him. So I want to encourage you as we bring this service to a close to respond in faith to Christ today. And if that means giving your heart to him, I hope that you will bow your head, that you will confess that you are a sinner in need of salvation, that you will pledge to live your life for him, and that you will seek to begin a relationship with him and begin to follow him. And if that's you, you can comment in the comment section. You can send us a message, and we will follow up with that. You can do it through Facebook, or you can send it to Mark, M-A-R-C, at linwoodchurch.org. We would love to follow up with you if you are making a decision for Christ today, or if you are recommitting 
or if you want to be baptized when it's safe to be baptized again, uh, we want to take those steps with you because today is a day of good news and we are living in the favor of God. And so as we close in prayer, I want you to respond in faith and I want you to consider what is God asking you to do today in response to the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you came, that you reached out to us, that you made us the subject of your life, that you came to seek and save lost people. And so, Lord, I pray right now for for people who maybe have been in active rebellion and somehow this word has found them and they're hearing it maybe for the first time. Yet they would set down that resistance and that they would run to you. For those who are in passive indifference or maybe have been lulled to sleep and are no longer pursuing you, God, I pray that this would be a wake-up for them, that they would step out of indifference and into a, a passionate love for you and into a growing relationship with you. And for those who, who have embraced you eagerly, God, help us. Help us to respond in faith to your word today. Help us to share your word with someone today. And as we close our time and worship We thank you for being that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.